your microlens on the universe with Stuart Harper, Leah Huckvale, Libby Jones, Ian MacDonald, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The Jobcast, January 2012 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm Christina Smith and joining me in the studio today are Libby, Leo and Stuart. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. So with the start of a new year, uh, we have a new segment for the Jobcast called Job Bites. And we're going to take you a little bit behind the scenes of Jodrell, meet some of the people out here, find out what they're doing about their research and also any other roles that they happen to have. So we're going to talk to some of the controllers for a telescope, for instance, um, Tim in some of his roles is going to be on the first one and maybe some of the computer guys as well as talking to a brief snapshot of the, all the work and research we do here so it's just to give you a feel a bit more about life and observatory and a research centre in astrophysics In the show this time uh, we speak to David Floyd about quasar microlensing and Dr Ian MacDonald answers your astronomical questions but first before all of that Libby spoke to Dr Tim O'Brien in the first ever job bite Today I'm here with Tim O'Brien and our very first job bite, which is a behind-the-scenes view of Jodrell Bank, and it's to give you a feel for what we do in the, in, in the range of roles that is involved in running the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics and Jodrell Bank Observatory. So, Tim, mm-hmm. I'm sure the li- listeners know you quite well. Can you please describe your role of what you do here at right. Jodrell Bank? Well, officially, my title is I'm an Associate Director of Jodrell Bank Observatory, um, which sounds fancy, doesn't it? Anyway, it's, uh, yeah, what the job is, is uh, I'm an academic member of staff, um, so that basically means I'm in the physics department, so the School of Physics and Astronomy, to give it its full title in the University of Manchester, which means I've got um, the sort of usual research and teaching duties and admin duties that any member of staff would have. So I, for example, I teach our... Uh, first year undergraduate physics students, the core course on astrophysics. In fact, unluckily for them, some might say that I'm the first lecturer they ever meet at university at 9am on a Monday morning, Ooh. which is yeah, <laughs> painful. Um, but no, they, they seem to, they're very much, enjoy, and I certainly very, very much enjoy teaching that course. So that's probably my main teaching duty. But uh, on the research side, I actually tend to work on Novi, so these are these are these are the original novi. So no, it comes from a, a Latin word nova, meaning new. So it was sort of uh, nova stellar, new stars. Uh, and obviously, when they were first discovered, um, people sort of you know spotted this new bright star in the sky. They thought it was a new star being born. Uh, we now know they're basically old stars dying. So this stems, these things novi actually stem from before we even knew of the existence of things called supernovae, uh, which were really only identified in the, the sort of early part of the 20th century. So novi, as we understand them these days, are actually binary star systems. Um, so there's, there's two stars going around one another. Uh, one of them can be either, typically it'd be a red giant or most often, to be honest, a main sequence star, main sequence dwarf, usually a little bit less massive than the sun in a very close binary orbit, in the case of the main sequence stars, with another star. And in the case of Novi, that second star is a white dwarf. So it's the uh, it's the core of a star like the Sun, which has run out of nuclear fuel at the end of its life, expanded to become a red giant, lost all its outer layers, and left behind this, this white dwarf, a dead star about the size of the Earth. Uh, so you've got basically two stars in close binary orbit, um, the white dwarf basically pulls matter over from the other star. It builds up on the surface of the white dwarf. Uh, the pressure builds up, the temperature builds up, and eventually you start thermonuclear reactions in that material. You convert hydrogen into helium explosively. You get a big bang. It chucks all this stuff off into space. gets very bright. If they're close enough, you will see them as a new star in the, in the night sky. Usually they're a bit farther away than that. Um, so, so you still need a, a telescope to see them. Um, and we study them with lots of different telescopes all the way across the spectrum. So I use radio telescopes, including the ones here at Jodrell, uh, and the emailing network spread across the country, uh, the European VLBI network, very occasionally spread across Europe, um, but also telescopes at other wavelengths. So, uh, for example, optical telescopes like, like the VLT in, in Chile, um, X-ray spacecraft like the SWIFT satellite in particular has been very useful to us for studying these things and we're interested in particular in um, how the material is ejected in the explosion whether it's in the form of jets for example um, and what's happened to the white dwarf after the explosion so in some of these cases uh, we think the white dwarf might be growing in mass because what happens is over a few thousand years 
all the stuff sort of accretes onto the surface of this white dwarf, then you get a bang and blown off into space. And then you might not see, you actually don't destroy the white dwarf. The white dwarf sits there, just starts accreting again. So in principle, a few thousand years later, you get another bang when it's built up enough material. For some of them, that period between bangs is on an observable timescale, so maybe 10 years for the shortest ones. So we do get the chance to occasionally see one explode again. And for those ones, it's possible that not all the stuff it gathers from the other star is blasted off into space. So the White Dwarf's actually increasing in mass. So every every all the time, it's gradually getting heavier and heavier. And if those are anywhere near the sort of mass limit for a White Dwarf, which is the upper limit on its mass, which is about 1.4 solar masses, the Chandrasekhar mass, um, then that a white dwarf, when it reaches that mass limit, will collapse under its own weight. It overcomes what's called electron degeneracy pressure. Collapses in, gets uh, starts nuclear reactions in the in the middle of the star, and it rips itself apart. And you get a titanic bang um, called a Type One A supernova or a Type One supernova in the sense of a of a white dwarf explosion. So that's sort of what we've what I do using different sorts of telescopes and try to understand them with with models. Um, now, in your other role, you were involved in a lot of outreach, and we may be expecting to see you on the TV very soon this month. Hmm. So can you tell us a bit of your role in yeah. outreach? Yeah. Well, my, my sort of this associate director role that I have is formally associated with public engagement and communications. So that means um, sort of external relations in terms of working with um, the public and schools and so on, and about telling them about the astronomy we do, promoting the astronomy, uh, explaining what we do with taxpayers' money, I suppose, in terms of our research. Um, but in particular, probably the, the most important thing is, uh, is inspiring people. So inspiring young people in particular to think about becoming, um, scientists and, and engineers of the future. Um, so yeah, one of the things that's been occupying my mind most recently, most of my time is the BBC Stargazing Live programs, which were, um, first broadcast from Jodrell in, uh, in January of 2011. So I'm basically the lead person at Jodrell on that program and responsible for coordinating all the operations that happen there. So it's a massive job and we're looking forward uh, this month to uh, to the second series of uh, Stargazing Live, which is the 16th, 17th and 18th of January. Um, they've actually expanded the program to be three one and a half hour programs this time. Um, but also there's m- many more other programs that are sort of also doing their own stargazing bits or, so for example, Blue Peter are having a special, uh, stargazing program, which is going to be partly filmed at Jodrell Bank. We've also got a, uh, an evening program on Radio 5 Live that's being broadcast from Jodrell Bank as well. So, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. So it's quite, quite, uh, quite hard to manage from, from, from my perspective, but, but great fun as well. And certainly great for, great for Jodrell Bank. I should say, of course, that they're presented by the, uh, uh, the famous Brian Cox, who's one of our colleagues, uh, in the particle physics group here in Manchester. Um, but also Dara O'Brien, the, the comedian. Um, and Mark Thompson, this, the one shows astronomer is also there on hand. They'll, he'll have, uh, representatives of various local astronomical societies, uh, out at Jodrell with telescopes. And we're all keeping our fingers crossed for clear skies, but you know, you have to be a bit zen about it. So we'll see. We've got plenty to do if it's, if it's cloudy. Um, and the basic format of the show is that you've got, you know, little video segments about different aspects of astronomy. And in the three programs this time, the main themes are, uh, the moon, um, the galaxy and the search for life and finding planets around other stars. So there's some very interesting guests. Um, there's a live link to the USA to speak to the last man to walk on the moon. Gene Cernan, um, will be part of the first program. Other, People that you might not immediately associate with astronomy, like John Coulshaw, the, the impressionist, will be part of the shows as well. So it should all be good fun and hopefully informative as well. So we're definitely all looking forward to it. I'm sure everyone is. It was a, it was pretty cool last year. So I hope it's the same this year. Other stuff you've been doing includes um, Jodrell Bank Live, mm. a rock concert, which you wouldn't normally assume <laughs> to happen at a telescope. Mm. Mm. Can you tell us about that? And, Mm. Some people may know you had a science chant going on in the crowd with that. I don't think I've ever heard about 5,000 people chanting science before, but it was, Tim got them to do it all. So <laughs> It was a surprise to me as well, I have to say. Um, so, yeah, we decided um, we're sort of interested in, um, in in sort of getting new audiences interested in astronomy. So, you know, there's obviously we do a lot of work with, with schools, with the general public, with amateur societies and so on. So that's sort of the bread and butter, if you like, of of what we do. But 
um, you'll find that there are certain groups of people who just won't be paying any attention. They're interested in other things. And some of the things that, you know, I, I get involved with, I get involved with a lot of work with artists and writers. So I've done various art exhibits and music um, pieces and so on, um, just to basically, you know, reach out to people who otherwise wouldn't notice what we were up to. Um, and in this case, what we wanted to do was get a certain group of people interested, which is sort of people in the, I guess, 20s to 40s or so, I suppose, that sort of age range, where at the moment for the Discovery Centre at Jodrell, uh, we mostly get family groups. But if you want people who aren't necessarily going to be ringing families, uh, rock festivals is probably one way to go. So we decided let's have our first inaugural uh, rock festival at Jodrell, which happened in July of 2011, um, live from Jodrell Bank and the headline act with the Flaming Lips. And yep, alongside the music, um, we had uh, people like yourself and others from here at Jodrell Bank sort of um, coming to Jodrell to give little talks for the public. So we had uh, talks with people before the, before the music started. We had little uh, uh, science experiments that they could get involved with. Um, and then, yeah, I actually got uh, uh, sort of bizarrely got to go on stage in between the bands and ahead of the headline act. Um, in front of 5,000 people. I was fully expecting to be bottled off, uh, but it didn't happen. And yeah, the science chant was born. So uh, the clapping along to pulsars was pretty good fun as well. So uh, so that was great. It was really, really successful. And I think everybody really loved it. And we're definitely going to be uh, going to be doing that again. Uh, and right as of this minute, sort of unfortunately, I cannot reveal live on the Jogcast who the headline act are going to be. Um, but look, put a date, a date, dates in your diary. Uh, 23rd, 24th of June, uh, that, that weekend is going to be the next, uh, Jodrell Bank, uh, live festival. We are not quite signed up with the band that we want to headline that. Um, but you'll have, yeah, you'll have heard of them and they'll, uh, it should be, it should be great fun and we'll keep our fingers crossed for nice weather for that as well. I'm definitely looking forward to the next live at Jodrell Bank. Thanks for that, Tim, and telling us you're all as both a lecturer, a researcher and as outreach. Cheers. Thanks for that, Libby. <laughs> Next up, Mark and Leo talk to David Floyd about quasar microlensing. Today, Leo and I are interviewing Dr. David Floyd of the Monash Centre for Astrophysics, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and he's been giving a colloquium today about quasar structure through microlensing. So, first of all, I didn't really know that you could put quasars and microlensing together, so um, perhaps we'd first better go into each of those things separately and talk about what a quasar actually is. Okay, so actually there's there's rather a nice connection between them. So a quasar is one of the most powerful, one of the most luminous phenomena in the universe, and it arises from the supermassive black hole at the centre of a galaxy feeding on material in the host galaxy. And in the process of feeding, that material is super compressed and heated up and it shines. So rather counterintuitively, you have a black hole producing an incredible amount of radiation uh, of light. And it's not that the black hole itself is shining, but the region immediately around it that's uh, you know, compactified, very dense material from the galaxy. And so I like to say that the supermassive black hole represents where everything, all the laws of physics, even Einstein's theory of general relativity, break and fall down. Space and time themselves seem to fall down and, and, and break in some sense. And to probe it, the only technique we can actually use is one that arises from Einstein's same theory of relativity, which is gravitational lensing. And this is the idea that mass bends space and time, so bends the path of light through space. And we can use that in some sense as a giant telescope or lens. And so this is known as gravitational lensing. And microlensing in particular is rather a tricky one to get your head around. But here we're talking about the individual stars in a lensing galaxy, they are having a, a lensing effect on the background source, and um, they essentially provide a spatial resolution. They provide spatial information at the angular scale of those stars themselves. So we've got like a background source, which is the quasar, and then an intervening galaxy or set of galaxies acting as a big lens, and then in a straight line from that, eventually us here on That's Earth right. seeing yeah. that. So a, a conventional gravitational lens is exactly that. You have a background source, a lensing galaxy, uh, or cluster of galaxies, and then us, perhaps equidistant the other side. So. Mm -hmm. And that provides us with some magnification, but it's not enough to actually 
peer down onto the black hole in the centre so of not, things. It's not quite like a big cosmic telescope. It's not quite. We like re- actually resolve an image. It's like an imperfect cosmic telescope, but one in which the imperfections conspire to provide us at the exact resolution we require, the exact spatial scale, or angular scale, I should say. So it essentially allows you to study details down to a quite a small scale down to in the, the structure without actually being able to see exactly how it looks, as it were. That's right. We, re- we resolve, we, we, we get information at the angular scale of stars in a distant galaxy. So we're talking about stars that are thousands of, I say megaparsecs, thousands of megaparsecs away. You know, these are stellar-sized objects. We're talking about micro-arc seconds, so million, um, millions of a second of arc. And a second of arc is uh, one... 3,600th of a degree. <laughs> so they're absolutely tiny. Really tiny, really tiny scales. So to give you an idea of the spatial resolution we're talking about, the bigger a telescope we build, the greater the spatial resolution we get. The best optical telescopes on Earth, in the absence of any atmosphere, are capable of or of the order of a few milli-arc seconds, a few thousandths of an arc second. We're talking micro to nano arc seconds, and to get that sort of resolution, you would actually need to build a telescope in Australia, i say about the size of Melbourne, I would guess about the size of Greater London. So mm. you're talking about a telescope that's tens of miles across. Uh, and if you could build that without having the effect of the atmosphere, you could actually afford this kind of resolution. But until we can do that, <laughs> we have to rely on these sort of imperfections in these great cosmic gravitational telescopes. And I, I think it's rather beautiful that these, you know, in a sense, it's an imperfect optical system, but in many cases, uh, these imperfections actually turn out to be very interesting, and in this case, extremely useful. And these things that you're looking at are, I mean, as you said, thousands of megaparsecs, so they're an appreciable fraction of the size of the whole observable universe away from us, and the quasars themselves, anyway. And how, how big are you then physically talking about the quasars actually being? I shouldn't have said thousands of megaparsecs, should I? Um, tens oh, of megaparsecs. Yeah, that. megaparsecs. Okay. All right, but it's tens of megaparsecs. So yes, but they yes, these quasars are at redshifts of two, three, so they're a good way back through the universe's history. Megaparsecs away. Mm. I won't say how many. <laughs> okay, well it varies, I guess. Yeah, so these things are are very distant. So in order to get a gravitational lens that works in this way, first of all, the you know you have to have an intervening galaxy, so there's got to be a fair amount of space between us uh, and the quasar. And secondly, we need the galaxy to be sort of uh, halfway between us and it. So mm-hmm. there's different kinds of lenses that arise with different positions of the, the lens and the quasar okay. itself. And when you talked about the quasar, you talked about it as an engine, the central engine. So is that how you think about it? Can you give us an idea of the mechanism and the sort of size? You gave quite a nice analogy, I think, in the talk about about the size of this central portion compared to the galaxy that it's actually in. Okay, yeah, so supermassive black holes themselves seem to be a ubiquitous feature of um, big galaxies, and we don't fully understand why some of these things are kicked into life, kicked into activity, quasars or active galactic nuclei, AGN. Uh, That's not understood, but when one is, what we see is a, a small region, you know, in actual terms, in the galaxy. We're talking about something that's maybe the size of the solar system, outshining an entire galaxy. And if if you were to scale that down so the galaxy was about the size of the Earth, then the region doing the shining is roughly the size of you, okay. and the black hole about the size of your head. It's, uh, <laughs> okay. A little smaller, maybe. It's, it's that sort of scale that we're talking about. So we're, we're talking about a region that's the size of you, outshining the entire Earth. So you can picture someone sat out there on the space station or on Mars, and uh, they see the Earth, but you're outshining it. That's the the sort of scale that we're dealing with. And so you can imagine that transfer that to halfway across the universe, and it becomes very difficult to probe these things directly. How does it release so much energy? I mean, you're talking about infalling matter. Yeah, so... When these things were first discovered, it was not at all clear what was causing them. When, when they were first discovered, first of all, people assumed that they were stars and they had no idea that they were actually very distant. And they discovered these things were at significant distances away. They realized they were enormously powerful and there was no known mechanism for providing that power. And early on, black holes were realized as one possibility because the amount of gravitational potential energy bound in a system where you have something falling onto a black hole is enormous because the mass of the black hole is enormous. But it turns out that the the process of dropping into a black hole can actually release a lot of that energy as radiation extremely efficiently. And we think in the most efficient cases, the magic number 42% of um, 
the rest mass energy of the particle falling in can be emitted as radiation. Now to give you an idea of how much that is, um, the most efficient nuclear process known, which is the fusion of two hydrogen atoms to form helium, that releases about, I forget if it's 0.7 or 0.07% mm. of the rest mass energy of those two hydrogen atoms is converted into energy. So you weigh hydrogen atoms before, you weigh helium atom after, and the helium atom weighs less by 0.07%. And that energy that goes into a hydrogen bomb or nuclear fusion, that's just 07 or 0.07% of the rest mass energy uh, of the atoms. So go up from that to 42%. It's one of, if not the most, efficient radiation-producing mechanisms in the universe. And it's we don't understand it because it happens at the centre of galaxies far, far away. So there must be some quite extreme physics going on in these regions. Is this Are these sorts of studies we make with quasars, are they, I think you mentioned, they're useful for actually studying extreme physics? So potentially, yes. I mean, this is a realm of physics that's not probable here on Earth. And one of the reasons we do astrophysics is for this reason. We, we find things going on in the deep universe that give us a more fundamental understanding of how the universe and how matter and radiation work. And so certainly this is one of the most extreme cases. Also, it's a black hole. 20 years ago was really still pretty much a theoretical construct. There's more and more observational evidence for them, but the idea that they're still they're black holes is still falsifiable. And we could find that they stop behaving like black holes if we get close enough to them. Maybe there's some other form of matter down there. So far, every experiment has you know, been consistent with them as black holes, but that may not be the case. So you know, certainly we're probing extreme physics and we're probing uh, a region close to a black hole. But these are early days, and I think the reason we're doing it at the moment is sort of to bring theory to task. So at the moment, there's lots of possibilities for how these things work. And without even getting into the high-energy physics, there's a lot still to be discovered just about how matter works what it does under extreme gravitational fields so i think these these studies can also give us some clues about galactic formation is that right if we if we're looking at the these objects are generally quite old are they if we're looking so far away so quasars are quite rare so we that's one reason we don't find them in the local universe they're just so rare but they also seem to have occurred a long time ago in galaxies so we understand that something like a quasar perhaps less spectacular, but a lower level. And active, that active galactic nuclei are pretty ubiquitous. We know that black holes are ubiquitous in galaxies, and the way that they grow is through accretion, through this process I've been talking about, so through accretion of matter and mass onto them. And this happens in AGN. So we think that the AGN process occurs in every galaxy at some point in its history and is more or less over by now, and um, somewhat earlier than now. But this process is something that appears to have happened in the history of most galaxies. The question is how important it is. And there are simulations and, and theorists that would suggest that the presence of the AGN or the, the growth of the, the black hole through a quasar or AGN is what stops a galaxy growing. So we know that the amount of energy that can be emitted from one of these black holes, um, one of these accretion disks around a black hole, is enough that it, it balances the gravitational binding energy of the galaxy itself. So there's sort of just a, a scale reasoning there, if you like, a, a dimensional scale reasoning, that there, there's enough energy. We don't know how it connects to that, the stuff in the galaxy, the matter in the galaxy, and so we don't really know if, if this actually is a physical mechanism that really happens, but our, our sort of, they're called semi-analytic models, simple simulations that look for ingredients that are missing in our big picture of how the universe evolves, those suggest that something like AGN activity could be behind why we don't see very big galaxies at all in the universe. And in fact, maybe even why we see the biggest galaxies are always red. They don't have star formation. So there are a number of reasons that that could happen, but they're not physically motivated. So we've got all this energy coming from the black hole. It could drive out gas and dust. It could heat the gas and dust and so make it not available to form stars. So that's the kind of big pictures where, where supermassive black hole growth fits into to galaxy evolution. It's, it's still unclear. Coming back to the lensing mechanism itself, you were talking about the lens now as not just being a smooth load of stuff, but being bitty and made up of individual stars. So what is it the effect that, that has that lets you then study the quasar in more detail? Okay, so we know that lenses really only work on things that are smaller than the lens. So if you take a magnifying glass to an ant, you can see the ant 
magnified. If you take a magnifying glass to a double-decker bus, it's going to look a bit weird, but if you hold it at the right position, but really it's not going to do much to, to, to the apparent size of the double-decker bus. Equivalently, you can think of these lenses. So the lens itself is, is a galaxy, and we think of a galaxy as fairly smooth astronomically, but a galaxy is actually made of stars. So it's clumpy at the level of stars and clumps of dark matter in the galaxy. And so rather than being a you know, nice smooth magnifying lens, it's a nice big magnifying lens with lots of wiggles in it, lots of bumps in three dimensions. You know, this you go back through the galaxy and there's a path through loads of stars. So it's an imperfect lens. And the effect is that all those stars along the line of sight or in the sort of direction of the object that you're looking at in the background, they will have a small magnifying effect on the background source if the source is smaller than the stars themselves in angular terms, so on the sky. Now, you don't see these individual lenses, these micro-lens images, but the lens image that you do see is made up of millions of tiny little images inside. It's made up of the, the effect of the lens overall, the smooth galaxy itself, and the contributing effects of all these stars uh, along the line of sight. And what this means is that you have, uh, in addition to the magnification you expect to see from the galaxy, you get a behavior from each of those small lenses, which depends on the relative size of the star and the background source. And remarkably, what this means is you can infer the size of the background source if you know about the stars of stars. And we know what size stars are very well. Stars form in a very limited range of sizes. That's well understood. So you can actually infer the size of the background source from these imperfections of the lens, if you assume that they're stars. So, so that's what we do. And what we find is that the size of that background source changes with the wavelength, the color at which we look, the light. And it changes in a way that qualitatively we expect. We expect the hottest material, so the bluest to X-ray material, we expect that to come from closest to the black hole, and then the redder material, the redder uh, light to emerge from a bit further away. And indeed, we see a stronger effect on the, the blue material than we do on the red. So qualitatively, we're seeing that the blue material comes from a smaller region. Now, you know, qualitatively, this is exactly what we expect, but quantitatively, it actually allows us to start to measure things like the temperature gradient or where a particular color of light or a particular emission line, hydrogen emission line, for example, emerges in that structure. And as I said before, the only other way of doing this is to build London-sized telescope. Okay, so you really are <coughs> testing the models of quasars then, these ones you were talking about, the whole proliferation of different explanations, and are you actually possibly going to be able to narrow it down with this observational data? That's right. So, as I said before, black holes themselves were not long ago just a theoretical construct. We now have good observational evidence for them, but theory has always led observations in this field because it's fairly easy to come up with a, a model for how this might happen if you've never probed that physics. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we can actually take that those theories to task and actually begin to separate one from another and to my mind, that's when science actually happens, when, when you have theory and observation advancing together. One without the other is, um, is almost meaningless. I mean, theory without observation is essentially philosophy, I'd say. Yes. And observation unguided by theory is kind of pointless. So, huh. so for me, this is an exciting era because we actually now have a tool. And there, I should, should add, there are other techniques for getting close to the black hole, for looking at material that's um, coming from close to the black hole. But this, this is unique in that it can probe really very close in a spatial sense to the black hole and provides information in a completely different sense to, to other techniques. Mm. So one of the things that you talked about was when you have multiple images of a quasar caused by a gravitational lens that without any microlensing you would expect the two images to vary in brightness in the same way mm -hmm. and instead you're observing that one of them was, was getting more bright than the other one. Yeah, that's right. So that, that's exactly the effect that we're seeing so the effect of these multiple but small-scale magnifications, each sort of micro-image from a you know, stellar-sized uh, micro-lens is not visible, but statistically we see the sum of all of those. And the effect is, yes, a relative brightening or de-brightening, um, dimming <laughs> of, of one image against another. And it, it gets into rapidly very technical details about lensing, but essentially one of the images we expect always to be magnified and the other... And we can say, just from the geometry of the lens system, which is which, the other can be 
relatively demagnified. So it's always magnified, but it's magnified up to a point. Whereas one is always magnified by a certain amount, the other has a range of magnifications. And so what we observe is a difference in the magnification of those two images. And what we get from that is a probability, essentially a, a chance that the size of the source that we're looking at is less than some fraction of the size of the lens, the, the micro lenses. It's technical, it's difficult to understand, but that's what we get. We, we're looking at a, an anomaly in the flux. We expect these two images without microlensing, they should have the same brightness. With microlensing, there's an increasing chance, if the source is small compared with the, the microlenses, that it's demagnified in one of the images, so dimmer than. And that's exactly what we see. So these systems, sort of, well, sort of pseudo-optical systems, must be quite complicated to understand. I mean, do you have to model these accurately or...? Yeah, gravitational lenses themselves are quite a mature field. So it turns out that to model the lens itself is is fairly straightforward if you know the distance to the source and the distance to the lens. And you have to make some initial assumption about the mass of the lens too, but that really falls out in the model. Once you have a some lens system, you have one, two, three, four, or sometimes we just see two images of the quasar. If you know the, the distance to each thing, you can establish the mass of the lens quite quickly. Although the physics is quite forbidding and it comes from general relativity, it's a mature field and we, we now have sophisticated models that can very quickly say, you know, this is the geometry. If this is, this is what it looks like, we know that it's just a quasar, so it's a point-like source in the background, and we can quickly get the mass out for the, the lens itself. And that really, together with the distances and the offset, so if, it, if the quasar is exactly behind the centre of mass of the lens, we'll see something close to well, a very symmetric system and perhaps we'll see a ring, the, the Einstein ring. The ring itself is actually host galaxy light, but if it were perfectly distributed, perfectly arranged at the very back, we would see a perfect ring. And the more off-center it gets, the more asymmetric the, the observed image becomes. There's actually modeling software now available. You put in an image and you can very quickly model the, the arrangement. So as I normally tend to ask at the end of the interviews, um, where can you take this observational technique in the near future? Okay, so this really is still quite early days for it. In in particular, the biggest problem I'd say that we have is a limit to the number of available sources. So we are restricted to using a particular class of lens quasar which have four lensed images. And in particular, we like ones where two of the images are close by. And the reason for that is we, we want objects where the two images are seen at a similar time and if the two images are far apart it's possible that we're seeing the quasar along those two lines of sight we're seeing the same quasar but at different times if the, the two images are close together we know that we're seeing it within a few days of time so any variability in the quasar doesn't affect us so there are about a dozen known sources so not very many it's not enough really to do statistics on the real exciting growth in this field will be, you know, with the discovery of many thousands of lenses. That will happen perhaps in the next decade with the advent of the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, the LSST, which will open up the time domain and rediscover really a lot of quasars through variability. In the more short term, in the more immediate term, what we intend to do, so, so far most of our studies have focused on images of these objects, but now if we uh, start looking in the spectral domain and start looking at individual emission lines, we can start to map out you know, the onion-like structure, if you like. We unpeel the onion of the, the AGN. We've just started to do that very broadly with broadband imaging, so just colour by colour, but we can do that more precisely with spectroscopy. And that is close to the limits of current observational technology, so the biggest telescopes in the world to take deep spectra of these things really is a whole night. It's four to eight hours on, on a single source. So quite expensive observations still to do. So that, that's that's the immediate term. The long term, as I said, is doing this with thousands of galaxies, in which case we can actually build up a, a real physical model of, of how these things work. It's very difficult to draw conclusions about the general nature of supermassive black holes and accretion disks from one object or even from ten. It's, it's difficult. Can I add a mention, by the way? Cause oh, yeah, sure. I really ought to mention Nick Bate, who's a grad student, a, a former graduate student at the University of Melbourne. He is the person who really made this technique possible. So the ideas behind the technique go back to Shudha Mao, who's now affiliated with the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, yes. Paul Schechter at MIT, and Joachim Wamsgans, I think, from the Netherlands. And they, they sort of foresaw this as a technique in the uh, in the mid-90s, but Nick Bate at Melbourne, he is the person who really 
took this and modelled it and put it into a supercomputer. We now have it set up at the supercomputer centre at Swinburne, also in Melbourne, on GPU, on a GPU cluster. This is apparently an embarrassingly parallel problem because basically you've got millions of lenses and each lens is a well-known problem. So you set each processor doing one ray trace and away you go, you get statistics. So he's the one who coded this up and he's provided really the technique. So I should send a big thank you to him. I just take pretty pictures. <laughs> Great. Well, we look forward to those observations of improving the models of uh, quasars in the future. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for that, Mark and Leo. Now we come to the part of the show that we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. First up, I want to talk to you about the amazing pictures of Comet Lovejoy from the International Space Station. These pictures, which I'm going to link to on the show notes, are of the comet taken by Dan Burbank from the ISS on the 22nd of December 2011. And these pictures of Comet Lovejoy show the comet's tail in the background with some stars in the horizon and then the horizon of the Earth. And it's also very cool because there's no atmospheric interference or distortion in the image because it's from the International Space Station. So it's actually a spectacular picture. Also, I want to mention that Comet Lovejoy is actually a very cool comet. It was discovered in November 2011, and it actually went it went into the corona of the sun, and it wasn't expected to return on the other side. It was expected to be eaten up. But yeah, after, after its travel through the corona of the sun, it's come out the other side more or less intact, so it was a lot bigger than what we originally thought it was. We also hope Dan Burnbright takes some more spectacular pictures up there, He's on a four-month mission on the International Space Station, so there's plenty of time to get snapping with some other images. OK, it's been announced that a former astronaut is going to lead a project which is known as the 100-Year Starship Project. And this is a project which is aimed at eventually allowing us to go into space, hopefully. Um, it isn't a plan to build a starship to take us to other stars. It's a project aimed at getting groups and getting companies and whatever to work on technologies which would be required for space travel for for long interstellar space travel things like um food prep uh, food storage preparation how you could grow it if you were away from the planet for a long time um so developing technology so on the international space station they do a little bit of research into this for growing some wheat that they made into some beer which you can get um, but this is to make it on a much larger scale. Yeah. And I'm assuming it's not just for one or two people to go to the nearest stars. It's to take quite a large amount of people to be in space for a vast majority of their life to travel to new um, solar systems that we're just discovering now with Kepler. So it's aimed to make all this technology possible and viable. Is that the aim of the, the project? Yeah. Than... Yeah, it's so that so that people get developing the technology is sort of gradually and it's also it's a plan so that normal people will benefit from some of the technologies that have been that will be researched from it as well because sometimes you don't really realize that some things that we use on a day-to-day basis have have been developed for other reasons initially and it'll also have lots of impact as well so for instance water on a spaceship be very limited and at the moment irrigation and growing crops use a lot of water so i guess it has a lot of impact just for everyday life yeah. as well so exactly. these technologies, while in the heading of a starship, actually going to influence the Earth a lot as well, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, um, another quite nice thing about this as well is the fact that we've not really done this sort of research since sort of the 80s. And so it's nice that we're sort of coming back to actually research actually practical applications of going into space for long periods of time. Um, I mean, like, I'm sure other people have heard of some of the old ones, the classics, like the Daedalus Project, Icarus, you know, you can look those up on Wikipedia. Um, after, after those sort of projects have, had been sort of thought out, we sort of stopped and we sort of went on to more practical things because sort of people were thinking spaceflight isn't really that useful in general. But as we've heard what Libby and Christina were saying, uh, actually it does have a lot of applications which could be useful and it's also pretty cool. And there is another interesting thing that they actually, um, someone's written a paper about the costings of it and how it would be possible to get that sort of money if we planned for it now. And I think the amount that they said it was uh, $1,500 billion for a small interstellar starship. And 
to get that amount of money, we would need to follow Norwe the Norwegian government pension fund style of advanced planning. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but... We do know the Norwegians are very efficient in their pensions. Yes. <laughs> We're looking at, what, the 20, 22nd century for this to all kick off, really, Yeah. the results of this. So, you know, if it follows kind of the history of Star Trek, I suppose, this is, you know, we're not going to have a problem of money by the time we get there. <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs> Moving on, I discovered that the Radio Astron Project has broken the world record for the biggest telescope, essentially, by combining the signals from the Radio Astron Russian Space Radio Telescope. They've combined the signal with that and the Effelsberg 100 meter in Germany, as well as some other um, another array of telescopes in Russia and the Ukraine. And they've combined these in a way that essentially gives the resolution of a telescope that's about 30 times the size of the Earth. So this is, uh, this is really cool. So with a telescope that big, what can you actually see? How small an object could you see? Well, so I think they've observed a very distant quasar to sort of test this thing and and find some interference fringes to um, test that the array works between the space telescope and the Earth telescopes. And this gives a resolution at the wavelength they're operating at. I think it's something like 18 centimetres. This gives a resolution of about one hundred thousandths of an arc second. And to put that into context, that's like looking at a coin on the moon from here. So... That's pretty impressive. That is amazing. I think it. I think it's of the order of a thousand times better than Hubble. Uh, wow. Okay, and for my odd and end, the um, I found a website called Globe at Night, and they're sort of a group of people that are getting together just to sort of try and do an open source project, research project, where they can gather all the information from people who send it into them on how dark the actual night sky is above us today around the earth and um so they've they've been doing this uh, data gathering for about six years now and they've had quite a high amount of participants which is quite nice to see and if you can if you go on their website you can find out about what they've been doing previously which is quite sadly basically saying the sky's getting brighter for most of us so we can't see as many stars most of the time and um, you can actually get involved, and you can get involved right now, in fact, because they're doing a survey now. They do it four times a year, and then they uh, they publish all that data onto the website. Uh, in fact, you could even download it yourself and have a little play around with the statistics in your spare time if you don't think their graphs are up to the you know up to scratch to your standards. And they're finding that how long have they been measuring the the brightness of the sky compared to the stars? Uh, they've been measuring it for since two thousand six. And since 2006, every single year, it's been declining. Uh, yeah, well, they found, like, the areas where you can only see, like, magnitude 1 stars have been increasing, and then um, areas where magnitude 7 ones that you can see in the sky, they're declining. So that's the sad thing. So magnitude 7 here is actually fainter than... Magnitude, the, yeah, magnitude 7 is fainter magnitude than 1. one. But yeah, the faintest is one in some areas, and that's going up. And you know, that's pretty bright, really, for a star. So, but the thing is, they uh, they do say in their own results that um, it could be skewed by the fact that a lot of people from urban regions are the ones that are submitting this data. So they do need as big a spread as they can get, and you know, the more people that get involved, the more accurate we know it is. And now to the man who lights up our night sky. Here's Dr. Ian McDonald answering your questions. Our first question comes from Jude Austin, who asks, If you stand on the surface of Mercury during the day, could you see the stars, or would the sun's brightness make this impossible? Well, this is the kind of question that could keep a curious mind awake at night, isn't it? Can you see the stars from Mercury during the day? Well, on Earth, the reason you can't see the stars during the day is because the light from the sun has diffused out from through the atmosphere, making the sky brighter than the stars. But Mercury has no atmosphere, so surely this wouldn't be a problem. But what about the Sun? The Sun on Mercury is really bright. It's about seven times as bright as a sunny day on Earth. This means that the glare from the sunlight reflected off the ground would be stupendous. Even though Mercury's surface is about as black as coal, it'd be as bright as walking around in a snowfield on a clear day. You'd soon get snow blindness, if that's if you didn't cook first. 
You might be able to get around this slight inconvenience if you shielded your vision well enough so that you could only see the sky, but generally speaking, seeing the stars would be impossible. In fact, this was true of the Apollo astronauts visiting the Moon as well. Most people don't realise that the Moon is also as black as coal, but it still reflected too much sunlight for the astronauts to see the stars from its surface. Now, I've had to do a bit of guesswork here, but I reckon that you have to go out at least as far as the moons of Uranus before you could stand on another piece of rock and see the sun and the stars at the same time. Even then, you'll have to shield the sun from your vision. You'd have to go about a hundred times further than the Earth, about two and a half times the orbit of Pluto, to be able to look back at the sun and see the stars with the naked eye at the same time. On the forum, Guerlo asks, on average, each planet is 1.8 times further than, from the sun than its predecessor. Why? This is a variation of what we know as Bode's Law. Put simply, it turns out the distance of the planets from the Sun can be described very simply, even leaving a nice space in the middle for the asteroid belt to fit in. Now, we don't really know the reason for this. In fact, many astronomers just put down to sheer coincidence. But there are a few good ideas out there. Basically, it all boils down to the fact that once you've got planets, they can move each other around the solar system just through the gravity. Now, to illustrate this, let me take you back in time by four and a half billion years. Imagine you're looking down the forming solar system. You see a feeble but growing young sun surrounded by a spiralling disk of turbulent churning gas and dust. In the denser parts of the disk, the dust is clumping together to form rocks, a bit like modern-day asteroids. Further out, where it's colder, the dust is mixing with ice to form dirty snowballs, a bit like modern-day comets but without the tail. Now, we don't know why these regions were dense to start off with, but it might have something to do with the exact nature of the disk's turbulence and viscosity in which case the spacing of the planets might already have been determined by this point. Now these clumps grew as more stuff stuck to them. Eventually, they start attracting things around them through their own gravity, and that's when they start to become big greedy bullies. Anything that's close to their orbit will be pulled in and gobbled up. As rocks grow into planets, they clear their orbits by pulling in all the other lumps of rock around them. Anything that's not pulled in will be spat out, ejected into interstellar space by a planet-sized gravitational slingshot. So there's little material left for other planets to grow in nearby orbits, and any that do are quickly dealt with by the Big Brother. Now anything just out of reach of those planets can still be pulled around, and vice versa. If a forming planet's gobbled up all the rocks outside its orbit, for instance, it'll be gravitationally pulled towards the remaining rocks on the inside of its orbit, so its orbit will migrate inwards towards them. Even when they've gobbled up everything nearby, fully grown planets are still big bullies, and will be tugged towards neighbouring planets. This usually ends up with a smaller planet being gobbled up or thrown out the system. The best way for a planet to survive is to be forced into an orbit which doesn't tug in the same way on the other planets. It's called a resonant orbit. Neptune and Pluto are a good example of this, where Neptune's stronger gravity has forced Pluto into an orbit that's almost exactly one and a half times longer than Neptune's. Jupiter's moon is another good example. And this is a more stable system, and is one of the few ways that planets and moons can live with each other in close proximity. But the real reason that our planets are spaced as they are is likely to be a combination of these effects, from the intrinsic size of turbulent cells in the forming solar system, to gravitational focusing and clearing of orbits in the forming planetary system, coupled with orbital forcing and migration of planets into resonant orbits. Now we're not really sure which of these is most important in giving us the planets we see today, but undoubtedly we'll learn more about it as we explore other planetary systems and see how they differ from our own. Our next question comes from Francis Day who says, I just saw a NASA video about the new findings from Voyager of what happens where the solar wind hits the interstellar medium. I'm puzzled about why there's a shockwave. Okay, there's two interesting points regarding this question that not everyone will know. Firstly, did you know that the sun's on a diet, but still getting fatter? And did you know that, in space, people can hear you scream, but you have to do it really loudly? So what do I mean by this? Well, firstly, the sun's losing mass. I'm not just talking about the light from the sun. Using E equals mc squared, we can work out the Sun loses about 4 million tonnes every second by producing light. But there's also about 1.5 million tonnes every second of the Sun's atmosphere that gets thrown off into space. You see, the Sun's outer atmosphere is a tangled web of magnetic fields that can find charged particles and heat them up to millions of degrees. We can see the bottom of these magnetic fields as sunspots. Gradually, the magnetic fields can be squeezed together until the sunspot bursts. And we all know what happens when spots burst, and it's not pleasant. <laughs> Thank you for that visualisation. <laughs> You're welcome. The release of pressure makes the confined matter explode away from the sun's surface in a solar flare at about a million miles an hour. 
So over time, the sun loses a lot of weight, but ironically, changes in its internal structure means it's still getting bigger, so its diet isn't really working. But what happens to this material, these particles, when they're released from the sun? Some of them hit the Earth's magnetic field, where they can destroy satellites, cause aurorae, and occasionally, fry the Canadian mains power supply. But the Earth is pretty insignificant to the cosmos, so the vast majority of these particles end up flying off into space. But contrary to popular opinion, space isn't empty. It's just nearly empty. And there are occasional atoms and molecules and dust grains flying around in it. There's not many of these, but interstellar space is also very big, so in total there's enough of this interstellar medium to make a big difference. These particles are sitting there minding their own business when along comes this dense wave of particles from the sun and slams into them. So, in the amount of particles there is, I've read somewhere it's one particle per cubic metre. Yep, that's about right. So if you imagine they could be under the stairs and sort of think about two particles in there, then that's what the density of the interstellar medium. That's about right, so it doesn't need very much dusting. Now, we're used to pressure and density waves like this in normal situations, but we call them sound waves, and that's exactly what this is. The sound of the explosion on the sun is transmitted in the ejected material and out into the interstellar medium. Only because of the distance the sound has to travel, and the exquisite tenuousness of the gas, rather than the deafening boom that you would hear on the sun's surface, you would only have an inaudible boom. So if you did scream in space, you could be heard, but only if you had lungs more powerful than the sun and ears big enough to hear it. So we've established that when the material from the sun hits the interstellar medium, the interstellar medium experiences the sound of the sun's explosions. But the normal sound wave doesn't create a shock wave, so why is the sun? The key difference here is the speed. Particles in the gas move around at about the speed of sound. That means that if something's moving slowly through a gas, the particles it hits can signal the particles further ahead and say, hey guys, get out of the way, there's something coming. If something's moving through the gas faster than the speed of sound, the particles further ahead never get this information. They don't know what's about to happen, and so, not surprisingly, they get a bit shocked when they get hit. Thus, we have a shockwave. Now, we're used to seeing this kind of shockwave as a sonic boom from aircraft or from explosions. Now, if you cast your mind back, I said that material left the sun at about a million miles an hour. Now, this is much faster than the speed of sound in typical conditions in space, so it creates a sonic boom ahead of it. And all these millions of explosions that are going off in the sun's atmosphere are creating shockwaves that hit the interstellar medium. The force of these shocks pushes the interstellar medium away like a snowplow. But the shockwave around the Sun, which is called the heliopause, is standing still. So why doesn't it just keep travelling? Well, there's another factor here. The Sun is also travelling through the local neighbourhood at about 40,000 miles an hour compared to the gas around us, which means that the expanding wave of solar ejector and piled up interstellar medium is pushed ahead of us in that direction. Eventually enough interstellar gas gets piled up ahead of the shock to start pushing back, and the shockwave slows down to a standstill. This means that there's a stationary shock between the solar wind pushing in one direction and the interstellar medium pushing back in the other, giving us the heliopause. It sits at something like three times the distance of Pluto in the direction the Sun's travelling, but in the opposite direction the heliopause can expand freely, which means it has a teardrop shape. Now, believe it or not, this is a simplified version of what's going on. If you want to know more, Wikipedia has a good article about the heliosphere that you can investigate yourself. So, we'll link to that article on the show notes. It sounds like there's a lot of complicated physics and action going on here. You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> Our final question comes from Peter Ellinger, who asks, Dark energy is the name given to the phenomenon causing the expansion of the universe. The following train of thought comes to mind. If E equals mc squared, then, as a star shines, the mass of the universe decreases, so gravity decreases, so the universe will expand faster. Do the sums add up? If not, where am I going wrong? OK, if you're still keeping up here, it's an intriguing thought. If nuclear fusion converts mass into energy and so the universe has less mass in it as stars shine, and less mass produces less gravity to hold the universe together. Meanwhile, there's this mysterious force called dark energy, which is causing the universe to expand faster and faster. Are the two linked? In short, no, and that's for two reasons. Dark energy makes up about 72% of the universe, with dark matter making up another 23%, so it's kind of embarrassing that we don't really know what either is. The stuff that we can see in the universe, baryonic matter, makes up about 4.6% of it, and only about 5% of that is in stars at any one time. Of the entire history of the universe, only 0.08% of that mass has been converted into light. So the energy that is in light is therefore only a few millionths of dark energy in the universe. So I'm afraid your sums don't add up. 
The other spanner I have to put in the works is that even though matter has been converted into light, that light still produces gravity. Now Einstein's e equals mc squared means that we can think of matter as merely being like a rechargeable battery of energy. You can store energy as matter. But Einstein's work doesn't just inform us that mass can be transformed into energy and vice versa. It means that mass and energy are entirely transmutable. Now we're used to thinking of light as consisting of massless photons. In fact, it merely has no rest mass. Not that we can ever bring a photon to rest to measure it. The energy a photon carries gives it an effective relativistic mass that causes gravity. Thus, even as the universe's matter is converted into light, the amount of energy, and therefore the amount of gravity in the universe, doesn't change. So, Peter, I'm sorry to spoil your idea, but at least you can rest in the knowledge you've given us something interesting to think about. Thanks to Jude Austin, Quelio, Francis Day, and Peter Ellinger for their questions. And if you have a question you'd like to put to ask an astronomer, you can get in contact via the normal methods. Thanks for that, Ian and Libby. Now, on to the feedback. Um, we've had a bumper amount of posts this time, which made us all very happy. Uh, we've had a couple of postcards, one from Mike in Florida, who says, you'll have the best astronomy astrophysics podcast. So thank you very much for that, Mike. And we have a, another postcard from Neil Hickling, who says, happy Christmas and a jodful new year. And I really like the phrase, have a jodful new year. We're going to have to remember that one for next time. We also got an amazing letter from Peter, who sent us three postcards that he bought when he was on a school trip in the 1970s, uh, one of which shows the planetarium at Jodrell Bank as it was in the 1970s. Sadly, it's not here anymore, but it's amazing just to see it and see what it was like then. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> It was. There's some pretty cool postcards in there. And seeing Jodrell Bank, and actually we showed this to some of the other people who were around at Jodrell in the 70s, it brought back quite a lot of nostalgia for them. And looking at it now and just thinking, wow, there was a planetarium there. So hopefully in the future, the Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre will actually get a new uh, planetarium and then maybe someone else will, when they go on a school trip, uh, can send us a post. Well, not us, but whoever, hopefully if the Jodcast is still going then, a postcard of their trip to the new planetarium if and when it happens. Also on those postcards, I really, really like the solar eclipse from 1918, um, which is quite a very old postcard. It's quite an old photograph, uh, and it's just very cool to see the differences between an eclipse then and what an eclipse is now, but that was done by the Royal Astronomical Society, this postcard, and I absolutely love seeing these. It's, it's something that you don't normally encounter every day. Uh, they also had... There was also... Um... On the other postcard, uh, it was a picture of Comet, I'm going to mispronounce this, so I apologise, Jerloff Achmarif Hassel, um, and that one was taken in 1939, and it's just, again, it's amazing to see pictures like that from, from then of, of astronomical bodies. So, yeah, thanks for that, Peter. It's, it, was, it was definitely a post, and I did a post dance when I, when I saw it. <laughs> I did get very excited. On to the forum. Susan Kay says, Thanks for all the great shows, Jen. All of your work is much appreciated by us listeners. Best of luck with your thesis. Earth Unit has also said, Thanks for another great show, and big thanks to Jen for all the time and work you've put in for getting the shows out. And we thank everybody who's been sending well wishes to, to Jen as well on, on the forum and on Twitter as well. Okay, moving on to the email. Um, we got an email from Andrew Judge, and he says, Thanks for the great year of information and entertainment. Can't wait to hear what you do in 2012. Thank you for that, Andrew. And I'm sure we'll continue to pump out the great information and entertainment all the way through the year. <laughs> <laughs> on Twitter... I have to say, one of my favourite tweets ever has occurred, and this is from Diffraction Man, who says, Playing Minecraft while listening to the Jogcast. I fall into some sort of geek vortex from which there's no escape. Well, hello, Diffraction Man, in your geek vortex. Um, I do love your tweet. That has a nice to escape. There's nothing wrong with geek vortex. Vort <laughs> vortices. <And> vortices. <laughs> so, and also, um, on, the, on Twitter, there's a tweet from... Don from Derby, who says, Hi, I really like your podcast. It feels like I'm just sat in an SU bar chatting about astronomy. Well, really, our recording studio isn't an SU bar. No, it's not really. Um, <laughs> we wish it was. <laughs> We'd like to be. We do love chatting about astronomy, and we do um, chat about it quite a lot. So, yeah. And also, thanks to all the Follow Fridays and retweets. 
and there's comments about Jen on Twitter. And we're actually looking for a new name for the segment, the new segment. Um, currently, it's named Jod Bites, um, but we were wondering if anybody out there could do anything better. So if you have any ideas, please post on the forum so that we can have a new name for the new segment. And also, if what do you think of the format of the new segment? Uh, we'd really like your feedback because this is something we're playing around with and would like to get your opinions on it. So please do get in contact with either better names or your thoughts on what we're doing. And the way that you can do that is you can get in touch with us on the website at www.jobcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. At YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Or on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And that brings us to the end of the show. All that is left to say is thank you to David Floyd for the interview. Uh, thank you to Dr. Tim O'Brien for being the first Jodbite. The editors were Jen Gupta, George Bendo, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. And the producer was Christina Smith. Until next time. Jod on! <laughs>